Welcome to What's Working in Marketing, a podcast for marketers that uncovers what's working across the digital landscape by tapping into the world's best data-backed research and through candid conversations with industry experts. I'm your host, Charlie Grinnell. On this episode, I'm joined by Vic Cambly, Chief Marketing Officer at Clearly. Thanks for joining me today, Vic. That's a pleasure. A pleasure to be here, Charlie. It's great to see you again. Yeah, likewise. So I'm really excited to have you you on the show today. You have such a diverse background working at some amazing companies. And usually how I start these episodes to kind of set the stage, so to speak, is, is taking it back to the beginning. So I'd love to kind of go back and get an understanding of like, where did you kind of start in marketing and how has your career kind of progressed to, to where it's at today? Yeah. Um, you know, I think some of the best advice I've ever gotten was really around um, how most careers um, happen as a result of, you know, coincidence, serendipity, and chance, and a healthy amount of luck in there as well. Um, and like a, how a lot of the uh, time and energy that, you know, young people spend on like really detailed career planning, five, 10, 15 years out, while well-intentioned is misplaced energy because of the fact that most careers happen as a result of those things I, sp- I spoke about a few seconds ago. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely a byproduct of that. Um, and I've definitely experienced that in my own, in my own right, where, you know, I went to the University of Waterloo. Um, I studied biotechnology and economics, mostly because I had like no real clear idea in terms of what I wanted to be when I grew up. And yeah. to be perfectly honest, I probably still don't. And I don't really care. <laughs> um, but uh, it gave me a really broad base. And at least I had some foresight to say like, hey, if I wanted to go to medical school, if I wanted to go to law school, like I would have had my prerequisites covered. And there was really no other strategy other than that. And like yeah. a healthy curiosity. Yeah. And both, you know, the uh, in economics as well as like in sciences. Yeah. Uh, so I was about to graduate the University of Waterloo. I had my graduation job, let's call it, lined up. Um, I was going to go and work in pharmaceutical marketing in New York City. What? Um, <laughs> and then like I'm writing my last exams. It's like the last week before my exams are finished. And then my would-be boss calls me and she tells me that, hey, our company has been acquired and we've eliminated your position. Perfect. And so inevitably, like, you know, in the middle of exam week, uh, you know, having a little bit of a crisis. And so at that point, like, you know, have my crisis moment. And then I walk over to, you know, my desktop computer at that time. Uh, and I'm sure you remember MSN Messenger. And Absolutely. Like, Facebook statuses was MSN yeah. status. Yeah. Um, I changed my MSN Messenger name to something like, you know, lost my job, just lost my job. If I have contacts out there uh, or is looking for someone, just let me know. Um, and lo and behold, like 15 minutes after I changed my name, like a really good friend of mine who had a role at Microsoft and was moving into another role messaged me and say like, hey, we're actually haven't backfilled for my role yet, my current role yet. Um, you know, you've got the background uh, in terms of like educational background. And it was an entry level job at Microsoft. Yeah. Um, would you, you know, I could wish you're interested in coming and interviewing. Yeah, absolutely. And don't, and like, again, like this is like a bolt of lightning because like, this yeah. is Microsoft in the early 2000s. And holy crap, you know, this is, you know, it would be an incredible place to start my career. Um, So, you know, Jen gets me an interview. I go through the interview process and I'm fortunate enough to get the role. And you know what? Like, lucky me. Um, I spend, you know, the better part of five, six years at Microsoft. uh, And at that time, they're hiring some of the best marketing and business talent in the country. Um, The network I build there is like exceptionally strong. 
Uh, and to a large degree, like I'm super close to a lot of those people today. Like they're scattered all throughout the Canadian business, uh, you know, landscape, whether you look at um, TikTok, Facebook, Pinterest, still at Microsoft, Shopify, like it's incredible. Just like we kind of all professionally grew up together, yeah. uh, which was like a really remarkable experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and come 2010, like, you know, I'm, I've been at Microsoft for five and a half years. Um, there's a few things that I'm starting to get scale on. Um, like just mentally, just, you know, kind of doing the same thing in the same company for a while. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, like I'm finding myself vacationing out in Vancouver a lot because my closest friends from high school and university are all out here. Um, we come out here for the Olympics and, you know, during the Olympics, I have that, what am I doing moment? Like <laughs> I love here. I love the lifestyle. My closest friends are out here I'm in a job where I don't really feel like I'm growing anymore. And so then right after the Olympics, I make a decision where it's like, all right, I'm going to resign. I give Microsoft three months notice. Um, and decide to like move to Vancouver in the summer. Again, like lucky me, the last project I worked on at Microsoft is the consumer launch of Office 2010, focusing on students. Yeah. Um, and I make the you know I make a decision that like, hey, the agency that we're working with is a really good B two B agency, but yeah. this is a business to consumer launch, B two C launch, um, and we need someone with like that kind of talent. Lo and behold, like Wonderman has just bought Blast Radius, a Vancouver based agency. Yeah. Um, you know, who's done work for Nike, the Jordan brands, Starbucks, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I talk to them, get along great with the team and we work on the launch together. A month before I'm about to move out again, like I kind of just say to them, Hey, you know, confidentially, I'm about to, I resigned my job. I'm going to move to Vancouver. And if you guys know anyone that is looking for someone uh, with my skill set, um, let me know. Right. Cause I'm, I'm kind of moving out there without a job. And again, lo and behold, like they're actually looking for someone to help them build their Microsoft business, supporting our Redmond office. Um, so again, like right time, right place, right opportunity, you know, I go and work there. And again, and so when I, when I moved to Vancouver, that's really the first job that I had. And then again, lucky me, like yeah. last radius at that time was like really lightning in a bottle in terms of you know, digital talent in the early 2010s, like they built the CRM, a large part of the CRM strategy um, for Starbucks. They were doing some groundbreaking work on the Jordan brand digitally. Um, really one of the top digital agencies and some of the best digital talent in you know, North America, if not the world at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then likewise, like after about three years or so at last, I realized that, hey, this agency services model doesn't really scale. Um, and I don't necessarily just want to be doing digital strategy for the rest of my career. Yeah. And I decided to move, you know, back into SaaS. And at that point, like there's a number of executives at uh, Blast Radius who left the company after, you know, the earnout period was done yeah. um, uh, with WPP, which is that large holding yeah. company that owns most of the agencies in the world. Yeah. And they'd taken a stake in a local startup and they were looking for a VP of marketing and strategy. Um, and so we spoke, it was like the smallest company I'd ever worked for. I think I was employee number 25 or something yeah. like that. Um, and yeah, like we worked really hard at building that startup, um, for about two years, we won some incredible deals with like open table, blackboard. Um, but like anything else, like we were up against like two very, um, uh, two very, uh, well-funded competitors out mm-hmm. of, um, from the Valley. Yeah. Um, and like, it was, you know, it was an uphill battle. And like a lot of what we focused on there was like, you know, how do we compete in a market where we're not the best player? We're not the best resource player. Yeah. And that really got very sharp in terms of like, how do we define our go-to-market strategy in a way that mm-hmm. we're actually saying no to 90% of the leads that come in 
because we know exactly the kind of deals that we can win. Mm-hmm. Um, we grow the startup, you know, we're doing really well, but you know, we're running out of money and we're kind of like looking at the end of like, you know, a little bit of a, you know, a situation where it's like, how do we keep funding this thing? Yeah. Christmas Eve, again, <laughs> luckily, you know, again, circumstantial, I should say, uh, Christmas Eve, 2014, um, we get a call from the M&A team at NetSuite, which is now NetSuite Oracle. Yeah, um, They're looking to close this like monster deal with American Express. And the key piece that they're missing is an enterprise billing solution, which is what my company at that time, Minex, actually did. And they've done the cost benefit analysis where it's actually cheaper for us, cheaper for them to buy us than it is to develop that in-house. Yeah. And, you know, again, like we go through that acquisition process um, and then coming out of that acquisition process, I know I don't want to work at a big enterprise software company again. Um, So I kind of just go out and I, you know, do a little bit of consulting. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't say it NetSuite, uh, NetSuite Oracle now, I should say. And yeah, I do a little bit of consulting. Um, I work with the team at Mobify, kind of help them shape their go-to-market strategy, which Mm. PW is uh, at a really critical inflection point, um, kind of. Uh, work with them on raising their first uh, round of money, their Series A, their Series A financing round. Yeah, um, and in around like just after my thirty fourth birthday, um, the day after, um, you know, I get a message from the same guy who hired me at Microsoft. You know, all those years ago, yeah. and it was very much a hey, you look like you, you know, you're looking for a challenge. Uh, he's at Facebook now. And it's like, you know, we're looking for someone to help us build our business in the West uh, and really help us establish our vertical strategy in the West. Why don't you come and talk to us about it? So inevitably, I go through the, uh, the motions there, go through the interview process. Again, I'm fortunate enough to get the role. And that turns out to be like an absolutely transformational life experience, both personally and professionally. Yeah. Um, at that time, you know, uh, one of the internet darlings, and then like watching what that company went through um, after the Trump election and Cambridge Analytica. And there were some really important lessons that I learned uh, along that way. Mm-hmm. And as well, just like the opportunity to like represent a brand like that, at that totally. time, it, to this region of Canada. That's actually how you and I met. When, yeah. You know, you roll yeah, at, yeah. Uh, roll at Arcteryx. Um, and then inevitably, like again, like towards the end of 2019, um, you know, I kind of reached the ceiling on where, you know, where I could take the role at Facebook. Um, and I was looking for my next challenge and I, you know, was looking within Facebook, but I couldn't leave Vancouver at that time for a number of personal reasons. Yeah. Um, and the CEO of Clearly uh, was in our office um, and Arno and I had become friends, um, you know, over the last uh, few years that we've been working together. <laughs> coffee break between a, a business review that we were doing. We were just kind of shooting the shit um, by the coffee machine. And he asked me like, hey, I was doing and I'm pretty transparent. I was like, you know, I'm doing great. Um, I'm getting a little bit stale in the role. I'm kind of starting to think about, hey, what am I going to do next? Um, and yeah, he's just kind of like, well, what do you want to do? Um, and I'm like, well, let's grab breakfast and talk about it. We grab breakfast <laughs> a week later. I kind of talked to him about, you know, hey, these are the things I'm interested in doing. And I articulate three things. Like I want operating experience. I want to actually, you know, run a business soup to nuts. Yeah. Uh, definitely get an understanding of like how to run and manage a PNL. Um, and I'm really curious on working on like M&A and expansion strategies that way. He flat out says, he's like, well, what happens if I could offer you a job that you could do all three? Um, <laughs> and inevitably, I go through the interview process there and I get the role and here we are. And, you know, the other kind of update as well, and I, you and I spoke a little bit about this, is I've also now, you know, made the decision to leave clearly um, very shortly. Um, yeah. 
and yeah, take some time out of the workforce. Um, mm-hmm. and kind of like, you know, entrench myself and kind of figure out um, what it is that I want to do with, frankly, the second half of my life coming out of you know hundred year plague that we've been, uh, we've been living through. Interesting. Cause like, you know, when we look back on history, like there's a universal truth out there, which is the companies of tomorrow get started during a, during these kind of economic black swan events. It was totally 2008. It was true during the dot-com bomb. Yeah. It was true in World War II, right? It's yeah. universal truth. Yeah. Um, and then the other part of it is like, you know, capital markets have never been more flush than they are right now. Meaning yeah. that if you've got a good idea that's got product market fit, you'll, you know, it'll, it'll get funded. And I'm yeah. really excited to see like, you know, first of all, like I'm seeing some amazing innovations as I've kind of like started talking to founders and VCs as I'm going through this, you know, this exploratory process. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm kind of going to sit on the bench for a while, you know, have a lot of conversations, see where I can help businesses, see ideas that I'm genuinely curious about mm-hmm. and problems I'm interested in solving. Yeah. And, um, yeah, throw myself into something kind of at the series A, series B level and really, help them scale because that's where I feel I can genuinely add value. So mm-hmm. that was a lot, but that's kind of like the rundown. And the key <laughs> takeaway there is like, you know, right place, right time, right experience, work your ass off, build connections. And you don't know the way that the, uh, the dominoes are going to fall sometimes. Yeah, no, that, I mean, it's fascinating. I obviously knew a little bit about your backstory, but not to that level of detail. And I don't know, there were so many things that, that I think ring true for me in my career, but you know, what was so fascinating to me is, is, every kind of all those like serendipitous moments of, of luck, as you called it, that like turned into like a key turning point for you have all been around growth and scale. And I think like that plays perfectly into like some of the questions that I want to ask about that. You know, you've kind of always landed, it seems in these companies that are, that are either just starting their growth or like in the middle of like big growth. Can you talk about like what that, what did that look like at different stages? So, you know, when you think about how, how those companies were planning things and maybe when you joined those companies, what did that look like in terms of businesses that are in those different kind of stages of maturity? Yeah, actually, you know, one of the things I, I want to call out to is like, when I started my career, I started at this, you know, gigantic, you know, enterprise software. It wasn't really enterprise software, like, yeah. this, like software behemoth. Yeah. They have Xbox, so I can't really call it all software. <laughs> um, and like it gradually got to Blast Radius, which was in and around 300 people. And then Manexa, which was in and when I joined, it was about 25 people. Yeah. And what that, and again, this wasn't intentional. Yeah. Um, by any means, like I'm not, I don't have that kind of foresight where it's like, I'm going to progressively get smaller and see kind of like, hey, what's the infrastructure that you need to build at yeah. uh, these levels? But, you know, there's kind of three layers that I view things at in terms of like, when you're looking at an organization, how are you enabling it to scale? Yeah. You know, and none of these are more important than the others, but they really do stack on top of each other. It's like Mm -hmm. technology decisions that you make and the technology that people are working with, the processes that you then build around that technology to enable that technology to be as agile as possible to hit your goals. And then you've got the people who actually, you know, run those processes, optimize those processes, and actually innovate around those processes itself. Yeah. Really, you know, make things um, as agile as possible. Um, so, if I take that, if I take that framework, technology, process, people, the best companies I've ever worked at, you know, they're looking at, you know, what, when does our current state of technology, process, and people start to break? And, you know, typically it's in that, like the three, anytime you three X something, yeah. kind of, it's again, like it's a general rule of thumb. Yeah. Um, so 
Uh, but anytime anything starts to 3x, you start to really break each and every single one of those things. Yeah. The best companies I've worked at, you know, the founding team or the executive or the C-suite, uh, as well as the board is looking forward and essentially looking at, I got a conversation with the CEO last month. Um, and, you know, my conversation with him was like, you know, what are you thinking? Like, what are you spending your time on now when your company is seeing this explosive growth? And he said something to me that is kind of patternistic of um, a lot of uh, what other like really great leaders have said to me, which is, you know, anybody can 2X a company, a little bit of hyperbole there, but like, you yeah. know, 2Xing a company is not what I want to be spending my time on. What I need to be thinking about is like, how do I 10X this thing? Yeah. In order to you know, 10X this thing, so to go from, you know, 2 million users to 20 million users, what are the changes that we need to make? Like, how do mm -hmm. we need to evolve organization? Like, you know, when we think about the technology platform that we're building off of, like, does it scale to allow that many customers, that much trans that many transactions that happen? Like, does our infrastructure actually scale as well, whether you're on AWS, Azure, or any of the other uh, platforms out there? Mm -hmm. And, 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 right? Like, does your, where does, does your warehouse system scale, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Your um, processes as well. It's like, where do those processes really start to see stress tests, uh, yeah. especially when you're looking at things like internationalization? Um, or add-on services that you may be adding, uh, you know, like, so if you're selling a, uh, you know, piece of furniture and you're looking to add an extended warranty onto it, mm -hmm. like, you know, actual systems and your processes actually support your ability to add the extended warranties on there. Yeah. And the other key thing, you know, from a foresight standpoint, as well as especially on your leadership team is like, you know, can your leader scale, um, you know, to mm -hmm. thinking on just like where things are um, currently to where things need to go. And if they can't scale, how do you, if they, if they can't scale naturally, how do you coach them into that um, or start having the discussions with them about like, hey, like what does a transformation of your role look like down the road? So there's really no surprises and you're having yeah. those kinds of conversations. So that's, I'd say like the most successful companies I've ever been a part of, like at a very high level, they're thinking about it through those lenses, like technology process people mm -hmm. um, and designing, you know, designing their growth plans um, around how to scale those based off of what's anticipated. And we can talk about like, hey, you know, how do you then, you know, build plans against that uh, in terms of how do you actually then build a growth plan against that? But I'll stop there for now. Yeah, well, no, I mean, the thing that comes to mind there that's that's super interesting, those three lenses, a common theme and kind of what you alluded to is this idea of agility as like a big piece of kind of all of those. And so, you know, in... In my background, having worked on the brand side and now working on a startup, you know, going from a company with thousands and thousands of employees to like, we're 11 people right now, building the plane and flying the plane are two different things, right? And, but you see, there's kind of like these two camps, right? Like there's the, the agile camp, like be, be scrappy, be fast, how do things scale? And then there's kind of this other camp that's like, how are we focusing on taking one big swing or going in, going all in on an idea? There's, there's two camps there. What do you think about that? Do you, do you agree with that assessment? And if so, like which one do you more align with? Yeah, I think going by and large, going all in an idea is without any sort of contingencies is idiotic. Uh, and I say that, I say that from the perspective of like, you know, you need to be able to iterate. And so it's one thing to go in all in an idea, but like you also need to then be agile enough to learn from like what's, you know, what's wrong. Yeah. Like what's not working, what your customers aren't actually responding to, and then have the agility in your people, your processes and your systems to actually then iterate off of that. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't know the last time some, like, let's just talk about product, right? Like yeah. I don't know the last time 
that someone hit a home run right off the bat on product release number one, right? Mm-hmm. Like, even like you look at like, you know, everyone talks about Apple and like their innovation, like, you know, you look at the Apple watch, like the Apple watch, the first generation of the watch, like it was okay. It sucked. Not, I had one. It sucked. It's not yeah, what it is today. <laughs> I'm more, yeah. <laughs> like at the time, it's I remember not, reading articles where it was like, everyone's like, Apple's investing all this money. And, you know, here we are, what, five, six, seven years later, probably, yes, like around that. And now it's like, well, Apple's like the largest watch business in the world. And you're like, and incredible product. As Amazing well. product. Yeah. And just iterations that kind of that kind of came out of that. Right? Yeah. Like everyone who talks about Apple is like, oh my God, they're this, which they are, this amazing hardware company. But even there, like there's iterations that, you know, that, that come out of that. Yeah. Um, but even when you're, when you're building software, it's even that much more important, right? Because the one yeah. thing we learned on Facebook um, is, you know, when you have, well, and we also have the benefit of like just the amount of users on there. It's totally. like when you have that, that level of users, like the way that your users use your system is actually like water slowly forging itself through like a piece of stone over time. Yeah. Like they will tell you yeah. if you look close enough, you've actually built the analytics or like the, 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 the data backbone strong enough of like what your users actually want from you. And then you invest against that and you iterate on that and you learn from that. Um, yeah. So to get back to your question, like the one big swing, it's like, look, if you've got one big idea and you want to take us out by all means, like absolutely. If you think that there's going to be, you know, the semblance of product market fit, mm-hmm. but if that's what you do when you just leave it, then like, that's where my, you know, that's, that's idiotic, you know, because <laughs> like honestly in this day and age and in this environment, every day you're not iterating and you're stagnant, you're losing product market fit. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, objects in motion tend to stay in motion. Objects at rest tend to stay at rest. <laughs> right. Like I think about it like that. It's like, if you're, if you're not pushing, if you're not pushing forward, you're going backwards. Like yeah, that, that's totally. a really interesting way to think about it. I want to, I want to kind of ask one question. This is a, a bit, a bit backtracking here just around career side of things. So, you know, people who are looking to work in, in growth marketing to kind of learn the ropes, you, you got your start at, at a big company, whereas some people, like there's two kind of trains there. Like, do, do you go get your start, your, your startup experience, or do you go work at a big company? For me, um, I was similar to you in that like, I got into a big company and I was so fortunate, kind of like what you were talking about, how you have your, your like Microsoft mafia. I have the same thing with, with my colleagues at Red Bull who have, you know, left the company and have gone on to Netflix, Facebook, Tesla, you know, you name it. And yeah, like where, where do you sit on that in terms of like, if you were starting out again, or, you know, I'm sure people ask you for career advice, just like they ask me for career advice. I'm always kind of like, go to the big company because that's what I did. And that's where I learned, but I'd love to get your take on that as well. Yeah. So, so there's also one thing I want to clarify. It's like, you know, the, the term more and more, the term growth marketing drives me nuts. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's not because like, you know, someone's intentionally trying to drive us nuts. Yeah. Um, it's more because like, <laughs> if you're in any role and you're not thinking about, you know, how do you drive growth from the role, then you're irrelevant, right? Like yeah. you're, you're really irrelevant. And especially as like leaders, like part of our jobs as leaders is like really to understand which one of the people on our teams are really like the 10X contributors and which are the 100X contributors. Yeah. And you know, which ones are genuinely looking at solving problems versus which ones are just looking at keeping the machine running. Mm-hmm. Right? And then like solving problems means that you have that eighth or growth mindset, but you know, you're thinking about it through the lens of how do you continuously improve? 
And that goes beyond just marketing itself. It's like, you know, it's connecting like what your role is to, you know, the overall outcomes of the business that the business is looking to drive. And it's not connected there then, you know, what are you doing with your time? And like, is your role really that important? To answer your question, you know, I think I used to go back and forth on this a lot in terms of like, you know, do you go to a startup or do you go to a, uh, do you go to a, um, a big company and build the network. Mm-hmm. And I wavered back and forth. And you know what? And I actually think like my answer to that now, and who knows that might change, you know, 18 months from now, as I'm kind of going through my own, you know, career, uh, you know, rejigging or whatever yeah. you want to be. Like it. Um, the best advice, some of the best advice I ever get more of the best advice I ever got was also, you know, a lot of the insight or a lot of the advice that we get when we graduate is this bullshit around like following your passion. Yeah. Um, you know, and like, let's, let's, let's be fair. Like when I was like, you know, 21 years old about to graduate university, I was probably passionate about three things. I was passionate about sleep, girls, and pill jam. Like, <laughs> uh, and none of those things would have gotten me very far. Yeah. And honestly, passions change as I get older. Totally. Better orientation is what are you curious about? And that curiosity changes, but like, what are you deeply curious about? Like, what are the problems in the world that you're interested in? in helping to solve or making a contribution towards. Mm-hmm. And what I say to young people now is like, that should be your North Star. Yeah. And whether that you know North Star happens at a large company or at a startup, um, it's all, I don't want to say it's irrelevant, but it almost is based yeah. off like where your, you know, where your general curiosity comes from. Because like, look, the cream's always going to rise to the top. Yeah. And you know, you, if you start at a startup that is obscure, you work your ass off, you help it find product market fit, you know, you've got skills that, you know, whether it's at startup that you can transfer to another role or another scope or at another company, you know, all things being equal, like the decision's really more around depth versus breadth. Um, if again, like, let's say I'm curious about a problem. I've got two opportunities, one at a large company, one at a startup that's offering me like an opportunity to tackle that problem. Yeah. And, you know, and, and then it, you kind of change the perspective on it there, right? It's like, at the large company, you'll be able to tackle that problem at a meaningful level of depth because that's kind of the the, the focus and the scope of what that role will be is like they solve that problem. Yeah. Uh, and if that passion is around solving that problem to like a, a significant depth, then you know by all means take that large company role. Um, the other thing that comes out of the benefit of this and you of that those large company organizations is, you know, yes, the networks because yeah. you know there tend to be you know good people find good people and hire good people. Totally. Uh, but also then get to learn how companies at scale function and work together and the processes that they build at a very early stage in your career, yeah. which then pay interest as you go and take other roles. And, you know, you can look at a company that's maybe, you know, two factors of growth below where that large company is. You're like, okay, I now see, you know, when we 6X this business, what we need to be building towards or kind of similarly what we need to be building towards. So, there's that side. And on the startup side, it's more of a breadth play. Because yeah. yes, you're going to be working on that problem. But you and I have both worked on startups. You're there, one there now. Yeah. You're also going to be doing a lot of other things because oh, yeah. there's not enough, you know, there's a lot of things to do and there's you know not enough people to do it, especially if your startup's growing really fast. Yeah. Um, so I kind of look at like, you know, if you want to solve the problem at a, you know, at a, if you want to work on the problem or the, you scratch that curiosity at a meaningful level of depth, or if you want to be, you know, yes, solving that problem, but you're also looking to get exposure in terms of like doing exposure mm-hmm. into a number of other adjacent and sometimes non-adjacent things um, yeah. that you get to start up. 
use that as a use that as a uh, guide. But that curiosity as the primary orientation in terms of that decision making. Yeah. It, you know, where, where my answer to that question is now. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. And and I agree with that. I want to, I want to switch gears a little bit here back to kind of, you know, talking about, about scaling and growth. One of the things that, that I've noticed in, in my career, and you've probably seen the same is growth is growth and scale is change and change is uncomfortable <laughs> and humans don't like to be uncomfortable. So, you know, what, what, what's your kind of take or, or approach on, getting buy-in and, and working collaboratively, collaboratively on things that, you know, are naturally uncomfortable, right? Like if you're trying to, you know, not just two X, five X, 10 X, that can be uncomfortable for some people. And so what have you kind of seen in, in your past, both, you know, on, on the big company and the little company side of things to, to kind of navigate that? Yeah, actually, I want to throw that. I've got an answer for everything. I've got a story for you. But before okay. I do that, I'd love to get your take. Yeah. Because I think about your time and just the growth that, you know, Red Bull transformed when you were there. Yeah. You know, from this brand, you know, like from this like brand to this media behemoth. So I'd, I'd love to actually get your take on that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think about that, you know, uh, first and foremost, I think it's a mindset shift. So, you know, when, when I was working there internally, a lot of us, what we were so fortunate is I think a lot of us were on the same page that we were comfortable with being uncomfortable. And so like, we knew that like, Hey, we're all, everyone here is really smart. Everyone here is really aligned on towards where we want to go. And, you know, most people sit, it was kind of just an expected thing. Like, Hey, we're pushing for something amazing here. And, you know, if, if it's too hot, like get out of the kitchen. And so like, that was kind of like the first kind of just core, I guess, alignment that was kind of like a spoken, but unspoken rule is like we push. Right. And that's kind of what Red Bull stands for as a brand. So, so that was the first thing. The second thing around that was we defaulted to over communicating. And so really making sure that um, everybody had a very clear understanding about what we were doing and more importantly, why we were doing it. And um, I think those those two things, it was those were really like the combinations um, that came together for us at that time. And, you know, we, we were super fortunate. We did some really cool stuff when, when I was there and they're still continuing to do amazing stuff today. And so, um, yeah, those those were things that I felt like we spent a lot of time getting alignment internally and, and kind of like, you know, playing therapist and talking people off the ledge to be like, hey, this is going to feel weird. This is new. This hasn't been done before. Or, or we're taking it like this is kind of our hypothesis and educated guess you know, here's why we're thinking this way. We could be totally wrong, but like, this is what we're doing. Huh. And some of it worked and some of it didn't work. Like we had stuff that went really well. And of course we had stuff that flopped. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how, how we thought about it. And so what was the inverse of that? I don't want you to use the name of a company or, or whatnot. Let's not throw anybody under the bus necessarily. Yeah. But what, what was the inverse of that where it's like, you know, you or your team, not necessarily at Red Bull, but like in another professional life. Yeah. Uh, you know, people will be scrolling through our LinkedIn's and figuring out who we're talking shit about. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, uh, where like it, you wanted to drive the growth, but the company wasn't willing to accept it and why? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's not necessarily um, one of those things that, I could point to and be like, this was the one thing. I think it's, it, it, it is a mindset shift. And, um, you know, when I think of growth and I think of change, the, the, where, what kind of goes alongside with that is risk. What's your risk tolerance. Right. And I think a lot of businesses, um, 
you know, struggle with that, whether it's places that I used to work or uh, clients of ours or friends of mine who work at other businesses, ex-colleagues, um, there is there is a sense of like risk tolerance there. I think that there could also be, um, you know, aspects that are, hey, we, we're, we're good. What's got us here today is like going to continue to carry us. I'm not necessarily a believer in that, especially in the last 18 months here. I think we've seen a fundamental shift in, in how things are done. And, and we've seen changes that aren't just like, oh, this is like a temporary shift. Like we've formed habits here now, like, you know, do something for, for a little while, like a couple of weeks. Sure. That sucks. We're on lockdown. When you're in lockdown for months at a time or, you know, years at a time and being restricted, that is building a habit. We've like kind of a change there. So um, yeah, I think, I think with, uh, you know, this, this rapid change that the world is going through, I think like the best, the best brands and the best marketers are going to be the ones who, who thrive in that discomfort because that's what it is. Like, if you don't like being uncomfortable, don't work in marketing straight up. Cause it's just going to, or growth or scale or whatever you want to call it, cause it's going to continue to change. Um, and so that's kind of something that, that, uh, you know, you can see pretty quickly when you're working with companies, right? So at Red Bull, I think we embrace that at other brands, maybe they haven't embraced that yet, or they're not comfortable doing that, or they think they know better. And like, at the end of the day, like it's their business, like, sure. But I just think like, there's so many examples, you and I could probably list off dozens and dozens of examples where we look at the best companies in the world and they have a few traits that are in common. And I would say one of those is they embrace change. I'm so glad you get, I asked for those. Of you. I, I asked you for some more color on that as well. <laughs> yeah. Like it's kind of reframing how I'm going to answer this question is yeah. um, like the underlining thing I'm, I, I really got out of your answer that I'm now taking back to how I'm going to answer this is like yeah. your values. Yeah. And like, and I mean that like in terms of like, you know, before, frankly, before I was at, you know, Facebook, I always kind of scoffed at values. It's like, you know, what the fuck? Like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Uh, you know, like they're just words on paper. Yeah. And there was that like, you know, Mark would talk about a lot at Facebook, um, which was your values are only as good as what you're willing to give up for them. And for better and sometimes for worse, you know, the company really lived and breathed that. Yeah. Um, the other piece I'll kind of like add on to that values component as well in terms of like when they become more words on paper. And this isn't, you know, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here. Yeah. Is difference in terms of how values are interpreted in founder-led companies yeah. versus manager-led companies. Yeah. And so, you know, when I, the, the example of that that I'll use that, you know, again, very early in my career is I was at Microsoft during the transition from Gates to Ballmer. Um, Interesting. And, you know, and it's well-documented in terms of like Microsoft's lost decade in the 2000s yeah. where the stock price stagnated, yet yeah. you know, we still saw the revenue growth. Yeah. Where, you know, there was meaningful, large market opportunities that were missed yeah. You know, during the Balmer uh, administration, for lack of a better word, <laughs> there it is. Uh, Balmer's tenure—that was the word I was looking for. When you look at, you know, the the you know SAPs for for the most part um, yeah. was was missed. Uh, mobile was missed. Search was missed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure there's a few others, but like you look at those, like those are billion dollar markets. Um, what do you mean was, you don't want to just bing it? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I still talk to people like some friends who were still at Microsoft and they still use the term bing it. It's just like I'm a buddy at Microsoft. Oh, Sorry if you're listening. <laughs> Had to. Low-hanging fruit, easy win. Cheap shot. <laughs> but like the like the values hadn't changed. However, the optimization point, you know, going from Gates to Balmer yeah. felt like it had changed internally. And again, this was another reason, like a contributing reason for why I decided to leave the company at that time. 
yeah. was I had a really hard time like seeing what the vision was. Totally. Other, like making more money from Windows Office and Windows Server. Yeah. Um, especially when like, you know, you're there and like, you know, Google's eating your lunch on search and, you know, Apple launching the iPhone and you're scoffing at the idea and, 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 and. Yeah. Um, but uh, so that, that was really like interesting in terms of like just seeing like how then those values manifest themselves and how yeah. like make difficult decisions on that. Mm-hmm. And the other one that I point to as well um, is, you know, there's this really famous story that we would tell um, our, you know, partners um, when I was at Facebook which was, you know, Mark after the IPO, which was an absolute disaster. Uh, if we think mm-hmm. back to 2012, um, yeah. like that IPO was ugly on a number of different levels. And then on top of that, like at that time, you know, mobile phone proliferation was going crazy. And the vast majority of Facebook's revenue and Facebook's product was so desktop focused. Yeah. So during an all hands, Mark got up in front of the company and you know what? And he said it to the company to essentially declare and say, hey, we're a mobile first company now. And what that means is that everything that we do needs to be thought through the lens of how do we design for, you know, customers yeah. or like people experiences on a mobile device. Yeah. Um, and you know, some people took it seriously, others didn't. Um, then there was, there's like these stories that started rolling out in terms of like, there would be, you know, Mark's engineering and UX leaders and teams would go into product reviews with Mark and present them and present them designs, present them roadmaps that didn't actually have mobile devices at their core. Yeah. Roll them out of the room and say like, no, go do it again. And like, I meant it when I said mobile first. Yeah. Um, and inevitably like Mark's calendar started opening up, you know, for weeks on end. And that was kind of the oh shit moment internally. It's like, oh no, he's serious about this. Yeah. Um, and like, I, again, like as a, as a founder, like it's always been his like, you know, ruthless decisiveness, like not meanness or anything like that, that like, you know, I always admired in terms of like, how do you make really difficult decisions that are going to hurt you in the short term yeah. from a revenue standpoint or from a product roadmap standpoint, but they're going to benefit you, you know, as you, or they're going to benefit your customer base and therefore benefit your company. I think you live in that case um, over the long term. So I kind of, kind of look at it through the, you know, through that lens and yeah. you know, your values, but then also the ability of the leadership team to live those values and actually make sure and hold their team members accountable, you know, to the values themselves, which then mm-hmm. really builds that culture that you and I were talking about, both at Red Bull and, you know, what I experienced at, you know, Microsoft and, and other organizations. Mm-hmm. And on the ta- more tactical side of that, it's really around like, you know, having a plan and executing against that plan and where that plan needs to, you know, evolve. And again, I go back to that, you know, desktop versus mobile example, right? Like, you know, calling that play early where it's like, hey, like this isn't working. Or if yeah. we keep this, like, yes, we're going to keep making more money in the short term. Yeah. We're going to be digging our own grave in the long term because the market is moving. Yeah. So I kind of look at it through, through, through that lens. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's, that's, it, there's a phrase that, that I've used both on the brand side and, and in building right metric is this idea of going slow now to go fast later or short-term pain for long-term gain. And you know, what's funny is like, it's not sexy. Right. Like it's not it's not something that like, you know, that like headline people or thought leaders talk about when they're talking about growth marketing or product decisions or whatever. But but like that's the that's the shit that moves the needle is the unsexy stuff. Right. But I don't think it's like it doesn't sound good when you're talking about it necessarily because it's hard conversations or it's, you know, you're 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 slicing and dicing in every different way to kind of look at different different you know ways to do things. And and also those decisions sometimes piss people off and it sucks. 
right? And, you know, you're, some people are, <laughs> you rub them the wrong way because that. And so, yeah, I don't know that, that, that definitely uh, sparked a lot of different memories in my mind of times where I've been in the room or watched leaders that I've admired be in the room have to, you know, they would probably say it's the shitty part of their job, which is like making a tough call that like people don't agree with. And then, you know, two, three, four years down the line, it's like, oh, that was genius. That was brilliant. Right. Like just like we talked about with Apple watch, just like there's so many other products out there that have been like that. So yeah, I definitely empathize with that. And the thing I want to underline with you, what you said, you just said as well, is like just the importance of toil and, you know, like bingo, if you're doing the job right, for the most part, it yeah. should be sexy. Like yeah. it should be ugly. It should be. Oh yeah. Out. You're you in the shit. Frustrated, like you know, <laughs> yeah. elbows deep and like not sometimes like not even knowing like where the way out is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like it, they're, they're, and I've got such a respect you know, for people who toil in silence for years and years and years. And lo and behold, like, you know, you, you've got something that, you know, is, I don't want to say shiny, but like there's a product market fit there. And you kind of think that, Oh, look, this happened overnight. But like, no, this has taken like years of iteration, figuring things out. And, and, and so that, that toil piece as well, which, you know, I think is underestimated, especially, you know, based off of like this very showy, you know, social media culture well, highlight reel of like look at how shiny my life is and look at this thing and oh look my company was built in a year and i it got acquired you know that type of shit where it's like yeah what like that's not the reality what yeah. yeah. <laughs> of my what of my just right up aside one of my favorite instagram accounts is actually called linkedin flex yes and it actually so good oh it's so funny like it just points a needle like throw a finger in the eye of like all of those like you know gloat uh, yeah. humble brag yeah you know bull- LinkedIn, uh, the LinkedIn, personal uh, news. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. yeah. It's like, this dude will like the work will speak for itself. Yeah, totally. Totally. So, you know, there's a lot happening. I feel like the last 18 months in marketing since COVID hit, I, I think, you know, we kind of had these waves of, of innovation in marketing and like different, different trends, whether it's, you know, being very performance focused and marketing automation and, you know, that side of thing. And then swinging back to being like, no, it's all about brand and how do your customer feel like there are kind of you know those brand and performance side of things and I feel like the pendulum swings back and forth constantly depending on what's happening in the world based on kind of where we're at today like how we've kind of come out on the knock on wood here back end of COVID um, what are you kind of most excited about when it comes to just just marketing in general today like is there is it a a technology is it a way of doing things is it a specific brand is it a trend I'm excited about the technology that's about to be built. Um, you know, and it gets back to what I said earlier around the companies of tomorrow being founded, you know, during these kinds of times. And I'm yeah. really to see like over the next 18 months or whatever that is, um, yeah. some of the innovation that we're really going to see, you know, I'm, I'm in terms of industries, like I'm really interested in what's going to go on in the healthcare space. Totally. Um, it's, you know, um, you know, delivering services, you know, at a distance, um, whether you look at you know, the importance of access to mental health care, um, both in terms of delivery, but also like cost accessibility and some of the things that they're going to be, uh, we're going to be able to do there. The other piece I'd say is media has changed and I'm really fascinated to see how this is going to play itself out. And like, again, where this starts to find its equilibrium, like there's another, and there's another like absolute truth that's going to happen which is, you know, household savings rates have never been higher yep. than they are entering this year. And at the same time, there's been trillions of dollars 
you know, pumped into the economy. So, you know, it's not a big statement to say that the consumer economy, assuming again that we find a level of equilibrium with like managing COVID, yeah. is going to boom. Yeah. And like 1920s roared for a reason. And I'm pretty sure the 2020s, I'm confident, you know, based off the information I have right now, the 2020s are going to roar. Yeah. But then I'll take back to that media question, that media statement that I had. It's like, look, I went to university during, um, you know, the rise of Facebook. Yeah. Uh, and that changed how I consume media. Totally. I consume me I consume media through feed, right? And then mobile came up and lo and behold, like I'm on Facebook feed, I'm on Instagram feed, I'm on Twitter feed. And that's my preferred mechanism for consuming media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you look at how that's then proliferated, like you and I are roughly of the same age. So like how that's proliferated, you know, in terms of like the products that were built focused on us using that feed as the you know yeah. primary mechanism for delivering information. And then Snapchat came around in, let's call it 2012, 2013. Yeah. This disappearing videos thing was like, holy shit, this is actually a medium that kids want to use. Like, yeah, you know, people are like, using this thing. You know, stories are everywhere. Like, yeah. We're seeing memes of stories being in Excel, right? Like, just kind of like tongue in cheek. Wasn't like, it like yesterday also- or the day before TikTok just announced they're pulling stories into? I'm like, okay, yeah, slap, yeah. might as well slap it on your clock radio at this point. Excel. Right. Because like that is the preferred mechanism of consumption of a generation of people. And lo and behold, that generation of people, you know, in who were like, you know, what's called kids or teenagers in 2012, they're in the workforce now. That's the preferred uh, mechanism of uh, communication for media intake. And they've got purchasing power. Mm -hmm. So you better figure out how to market to those people as a result of that purchasing power. Yeah. Where things really fascinating right now for me is with TikTok. Yeah, Um, same. you've had another medium that's kind of, you know, accelerated its adoption, like whatever we want to call it, like short form, six second video, like, yeah. you know, um, virtual Broadway, like whatever the hell we want to call it. Yeah. And it's like so curious where I was listening to another podcast and he was talking about how the most played, and I've got to verify this to be fair, but he was talking about how the most played songs on YouTube now aren't even like songs but they're like the six second hooks yeah. that are being played in TikTok songs. Yeah. And it's like, hang on a second. You've got a group of teenagers that have now decided that this format is how they want to prefer their preferred format for consuming media. Yeah. So what I'm really curious on then is like how this then manifests itself yeah. over the course of the next you know, five or 10 years as that generation enters the workforce, starts getting uh, processed yeah. and what that means for like how we market yeah. uh, people. So I, I know that's like less specific around like, hey, no, no. You know, Canadian Tire is doing e-commerce. But <laughs> well, there's a macro, which I am, but um, there's a macro trend there around like, you know, there's a generation and a media change that's happened. Um, that's really that's really fascinating, and I kind of take it back to like, um, you know, one of the one of the pieces of reading that they gave us at Facebook when we started was Marshall McLuhan's uh, I can't remember the name uh, Media in Theory. It was written yeah. in the fifties or forties. Yeah, McLuhan talks about like how when a plane approaches the sound barrier you know, all of a sudden you can start seeing sound waves on the wingtips. Yeah. That like how, when you start to reach the limits of something, you actually start to see the, you know, the, 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 the forms of the next iteration of that thing, you know, coming together. It's like sound all of a sudden is appearing as matter. He talks yeah. about how, you know, um, the limits of photography, this is probably a better example, the limits of photography were never more evident than when the video camera came out. Yeah. It was all of a sudden from like the static, like, you know, screenshot, but it's not a screenshot, but they're like a yeah. static image, yeah. you know, to be able to arrange those static images in a manner that told a story, which completely changed, you know, how we communicate with each other. 
and we're there again. Like yeah. we've been there like a number of times throughout like, our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And then you think about like even our parents. Like, there's a reason my parents just can't turn the goddamn TV off. <laughs> it's their it's the media. Or just switch HDMI ports. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. But yeah. medium that they grew up with. So yeah, uh, long-winded answer, but that's what I'm really fascinated about. In terms yeah, of I think that the TikTok one is is fascinating because I feel like that short form video, like that's kind of been hiding in plain sight. Like that is something that, you know, I feel like a lot of smart people that you and I both know wouldn't have been like, oh yeah, that's the thing, right? Like we, we saw it for like a hot minute with Vine and then, yeah. you know, then it, it's kind of come to resurgence. And I think a big piece actually, uh, obviously is the algorithm. And I actually watched this really great, it's a 13 minute video by the Wall Street Journal. They did an investigation into the TikTok algorithm. And anybody listening, I think if you just Google Wall Street Journal TikTok algorithm, basically they created fake TikTok profiles and recorded how setting up those profiles, the algorithm would serve them and what kind of rabbit holes it would take them down. It's a fascinating look. And I I kind of felt the same way when, when I first got on TikTok. I basically started scrolling and I was so as kind of like someone like you, who's like a nerd who has worked in this stuff. I was so fascinated with how little input I had to give to that algorithm for it to spit out shit that I loved shit that I thought was hilarious that I didn't even know I would like. Right. And so like, that was crazy to me. And, and, you know, kind of building off what you said, yeah, I think there has been that fundamental shift between this younger generation and short form video and how that's going to con- like, you know, change how we consume media. It's also going to link to commerce in some way, obviously, right? That's kind of the next foundation. Then there's also the kind of piece of like, how how are you creating these experiences that are super deep and rich without that much user input, right? I think about Facebook, right? Like, obviously, Facebook did a really great job because all of us were sitting there for years and years hammering in information, how we felt, where we went to school, joining this group. Like, they did a great job of collecting information. What I think is so fascinating is, TikTok doesn't really collect any information except for how fast or how slow your thumb scroll is, or are you downloading it? Or did you pause there? Excuse me. So that's kind of something where I'm fascinated about. It kind of reminds me of like Amazon's no click ordering, right? But like, what is that for media? And what does that mean for content consumption? And how does that eventually tie into commerce, right? Like we're all kind of getting to that point where it's like, if these, if there's barriers of friction, how are all these platforms you know, creating these experiences where that friction is just like not there. Can I add one final thing to that? Absolutely. Yeah. So I feel like this is a separate episode, by the way. I'm like, this is amazing. Like just yeah. talking about that, but right. continue. Yeah. Um, the, the core truth that a lot of marketers want to ignore in terms of what has changed is we've went from a world over the last 20 years and it's happened very quickly yeah. where people used to find products. And so I'd go out in the world, I'd see a billboard, I'd be watching the Super Bowl, I'd see a commercial, I'd be, you know, um, you know, flipping through a magazine at the doctor's office, I'd see that. So I would find a product as a result of that. Yeah. The world where products find us. Yeah. And like that is a, you know, people finding products or products finding us. Like that yeah. is a fundamental shift that's happened in marketing. Totally. And a lot uh, more, more and more marketers are like realizing like just the role that those algorithms play in product discovery. Yeah. And then the game becomes, how do you then make sure that what you're building to put into those algorithms, both from a bidding strategy standpoint, and actually more importantly, from a creative standpoint, totally, how you're crafting your creative message yeah. in a way that is going to be easily intakeable, I just made up a word, easily digestible. Optimize for it, optimize for consumption. Is your message in the, are you hitting people with your message in the front as opposed yeah. to, 
waiting for the end of a 30 second ad. Yeah. There's a fundamental shift there in terms of like the medium that you're designing for mm-hmm. uh, based off of the medium you were designing for, you know, 20 years ago, even. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay. As, as we wind down here, I have a couple of rapid fire questions. What's a book, one book that you would recommend someone working in growth or marketing to, to read? I've got two answers for that. So the okay. book growth or marketing is a book called how brands grow. And I cannot remain the, remember the name of the author. Yeah. It was Byron something. Yeah. Yeah, he's a professor in uh, in uh, in Australia, and he really breaks down marketing into two things: demand creation and demand capture. Yep. So brand marketing, and you know, demand uh, performance marketing. Performance. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like I haven't been doing it for ten years. <laughs> you know that thing you do. Um, but then the role of uh, the role of brand marketing, he really distills it down into like, how do you actually occupy a couple of neurons in someone's brain? Mm-hmm. When they're ready to consider your products or consider your category, you're number one or number two. Yeah. How do you put establishing those? Like, there's a reason why Sleep Country has that jingle. Yeah. We get out of our heads. It's like when we're ready to buy a mattress. You know, <laughs> why buy a mattress anywhere else? But, yeah. You know, they're you know in the consideration set, and yeah. that's the role of brand marketing. Yeah. Uh, and so that's fundamentally changed my you know thinking on how I think about like an investment in brand. Yeah. Uh, kind of like the other book I'd say is um, I recently reread Viktor Frankl's. Um, Man's search for meaning. Yeah, um, I think it's a really important book in terms of like how we decide to invest our time in life, um, and make sure that you know we're getting the right balance um, across like three vectors of how we spend our time, love, work, and then struggle. And what I mean by struggle is like finding things that you care about, you're curious about, to suck a little bit less at every day. Yeah, and trying to invest in that. So I'd say those those two books are the ones that I'd recommend. Yeah, continuing on that thread, you know, I I found that for myself. I've learned a lot just by consuming information, like reading a ton, you know, whether it's Twitter articles, whatever, who are you following or what are you reading? Like what's a, what's a daily newsletter for you or something that, that you're following or reading? Yeah. So I'll actually, you know, uh, pump a product here. Um, there was an incredible newsletter out there called peak. Uh, it's a Canadian newsletter that essentially is a, you know, five minute distillation of like all the headlines for the day. Yeah. And that in my, you know, Google home device, which I've kind of set up kind of is my media intake for the day. Yeah. Um, in terms of, uh, yeah, just getting a rundown on what's going on in the world. I also try not to spend too much time on that because <laughs> there's a lot of fear porn out there that I don't necessarily <laughs> want to be you know, devoting a ton of mind to. Um, and then in terms of uh, who's on my Twitter feed, um, I think Chamath Polyopathy is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I learn a lot in terms of just like how to look at problems from a first first principle standpoint as a result of the work that he does and like yeah. what social cap- the way that social capital you know breaks down uh, breaks down markets. Yeah, uh, Matt Taibbi's and Glenn Greenwald are incredible from yeah. an investigative reporting standpoint. And on the other side of it, actually, I've got a ton of respect for like the work that Kara Swisher does. Yeah, it kind of helps like me get like both sides of you know perspective on what's going on in you know the marketing technology industries. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kara, I, I'm a big Kara Swisher fan and and uh, yeah, all those other ones I, I follow as well. So, okay, last question. Where's the best place for people to get a hold of you online? I feel like, you know, we've talked about so many things and there are going to be people who want to reach out to you. What's the best place for them to, to get a hold of you? Yeah, I'd say like LinkedIn messaging is probably like a, an easier one. It's like, uh, you know, Vic Cambly on, on LinkedIn, K-A-M-B-L-I. Um, or you can email me, um, you know, I'm, like I mentioned, like I'm leaving my role, so I'll be, uh, definitely spending a lot of free time and always open to conversations like this one. Cool. Uh, email address is Vic, V-I-K. And then again, my last name, K-A-M-B-L-I 
at gmail.com. Um, and yeah. Cool. Well, Vic, thank you very much for taking the time. Always love chatting with you. I feel like we could go on for hours and hours and hours and uh, excited to see where things go in, in your, your next moves and stay in touch. Thanks so much, Charlie. This has been a blast. For show notes, other episodes, and more content, check out rightmetric.co. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.